Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Odana Westat, who's Elihu Professor of History at Yale University, and he'll be talking about his new book, Empire and Righteous Nation, 600 Years of China-Korea Relations, which was published in 2021 by Harvard University Press. Outside East Asia, knowledge and understanding of China and Korea often reaches people in quite different ways via separate channels. Each country has its own quite distinctive image, and whether in the sphere of culture, politics, economics or fermented vegetables, the two places for good reason carry quite different associations on the global stage. Yet connections between China, a large historical empire, as our guest today puts it, and Korea, a smaller though by no means small nation, have long been absolutely key to life in each place and beyond. It is this connection, long in the making and intense in its competition, as Westad puts it, that he explores uh, in his new book, Empire and Righteous Nation, which offers not only a highly readable and entertaining survey through six centuries of tumultuous history, but also an argument that China and Korea's distinctive neighborly relationship has mattered a great deal to the East Asian region and the world at large. From dynamics between Ming and Choson states forged in mutual admiration for Neo-Confucian virtue, to ambivalent Qing-Choson relations with their curious blend of admiration and suspicion, through Japanese colonization, emerging 20th century nationalisms, and up to a contemporary situation in which China interacts with two polities on the Korean peninsula. At every turn, the relationship emerges as central to affairs extending well uh, well beyond the Yalu and Tumen River border, and highly instructive regarding ideas of empire and nation themselves. But the author is here to tell us more himself, and so it's a great pleasure to say, Anna Westat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be on the podcast. Uh, well, in fact, I should say, I think you're coming back to the New Books Network, because I believe you appeared on yeah, one of right. the channels a couple of years I ago. I've been on one of the channels before. So welcome back. Um, well, uh, thank you, as I say, yes, for appearing. And uh, maybe you could begin by uh, kind of uh, giving us an account, maybe, uh, keeping us up to date uh, based on your previous appearance or a, a sort of broader sense of how you came to this book and why China-Korea relations have appeared in what I should say is, uh, you know, very long and distinguished career uh, dealing with lots of questions of international relations and East Asia. I've always been interested in the relationship between China and Korea. Um, both, uh, as you see from the book, because I have an interest in China's international affairs in, in a broad sense, but also because Korea and its history has fascinated me entirely distinctly from uh, my interest in, in China. And this has been going on for, uh, for some time, probably going back to when I was first a student, in, in an undergraduate student in China back in the late 1970s and met, met Korean students that were there. And since then, I spent quite a bit of time, uh, I spent a lot of time in China, but I also spent quite a bit of time in Korea. Mm. Uh, in South Korea, and gotten to know the country a bit. So 
this is a, uh, a book that comes out of a set of lectures I did at Harvard back in, in 2017, quite shower lectures. And when they invited me to do those lectures, I thought about doing it on a set of relationships between China and the outside world. But then when I thought about it a little bit more, I concluded that maybe it would be better to look at what has been, as you pointed out in your intro, probably the longest standing and most significant of these relationships between China and one of its neighbors, namely between China and, and Korea. So that's how I, how I arrived at this. And I must say that Sometimes it can be tough to go from a set of lectures that are given for one pur purpose and over onto a book. But that was not the case here. Uh, I found the book um, thoroughly exciting to, to do because it took me into territory that uh, I really wanted to research for some time. Mm. Well, that comes across, I think, very well in the book itself, which is, uh, you know, it, it reads as something which has been, uh, it's got some genesis in something that is there to be listened to and engaged with, uh, you know, perhaps beyond uh, the, the somewhat drier uh, uh, academic fare that one account encounters from time to time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, well, I thought we'd just jump straight in uh, to the topics and the, and the kind of concerns of the book. So you provide a bit of an introduction, which, as you say, uh, outlines this um, uh, importance of this relationship to both sides, its longstanding and very distinctive nature in some ways. Um, and I think something that kind of is a recurrent theme of the book that is so interesting and engaging is the extent to which China-Korea relations offer a kind of a paradigm for uh, understanding the relationships of each one with a broader outside world, uh, you know, perhaps something uh, closer to what you may have originally thought these Reichshauer lectures would be about. So I wonder, uh, first up, given that this is the first sort of focus of the first chapter uh, of the book, how you came to sort of see this relationship as paradigmatic or in some ways exemplary, um, and in particular, I suppose, how it kind of gave you an understanding of these ideas of empire and nation in particular, which appear in the title. Mm. Mm. So, of course, this is a, a relationship that goes very far back in time, much further back than when I started in the in the late 14th century. But I thought that for a little book, you know, covering 600 years is probably enough. But it, the relationship goes back much further than that. It, it goes back at least 2,000 years um, in the sense that you can you can talk meaningfully about a, a, a China and a Korea in a cultural, much more than more, more than a political sense, and relationships then, sometimes hybrid relationships between these two that develop. Probably the most long-standing relationship that uh, cultures centered in China have to cultures centered elsewhere. So, so that's interesting in itself in terms of that longevity uh, but also changeability of the of the relationship. The other reason why I wanted to do a relatively shorter period of time, not just for the sake of limiting the chronology, is that at the end of the 14th century, something really dramatic happens, both in, in China and in Korea. Uh, so this is the period right after the collapse of the Mongol global empire that strongly influenced and controlled uh, both. China and, and, and Korea. Um, and it gave rise to almost desperate search for order in both of these areas. So when I talk about China and Korea here, I talk about areas rather than states. The state shifted, changed, but the, the cultural area stayed more or less intact. 
um, something really dramatic happened in both of these places. Uh, what you could call a neo-Confucian revolution to respond to this search for order. Um, meet two new states being set up, the Ming Empire in China first in the 1360s, and then uh, the Joseon uh, Kingdom in, in, in Korea towards the end of the century. And both of these were driven by this search for neo-Confucian ideals, a new way of interacting between state and society and between state and the individual based on a set of, of obligations and rights um, that was loosely derived from classical Confucianism. So this is connected to the Confucian inheritance that both of these countries have, but in a new form that really started appearing in China during the Song and then comes into full fruition as a kind of state ideology uh, in, the, in the late 14th century uh, in a very dramatic fashion. So this is about really revolutionizing the relationship between individuals and the state, um, making it much more personal, making it much more dependent on a set of uh, rules for behavior, uh, both from the side of the people who are in charge of the state and those who, who are subject to the state. Mm -hmm. And so they are in a kind of yeah comparable uh, situation here vis-a-vis -vis certain ideas, certain ideals, um, but also they're in a political uh, relationship as as polities, right, as entities. Yeah. So, um, but they are nevertheless very, very different and distinct kinds of, of entity. Um, so could you say, uh, I mean, I guess why empire and nation are in the title and, and what they mean and, and, you know, how that helps us to understand the differences between these two bodies across time? Yeah, so I was going back and forth on that and for quite a while, you know, what kind of categories I should use, which then also came to influence, of course, the title for the for the book. Um, yeah, China as an empire, I think, is uh, undoubtedly true. Uh, true for most of its existence. Um, it's an empire that, uh, in various forms during the various variations that we've had, um, rules over different groups of people, different uh, areas, sometimes not very much connected in terms of cultural background or even interlinked in terms of history. Um, so that's a pretty straightforward definition, I think, um, with all the challenges that had come from both running an empire, but especially being on the edges of an empire, right? mm -hmm. uh, which is not always a very comfortable position to be in. The bigger question is, you know, how to characterize Korea during this period or the Joseon state, which Korea became from the late 14th century on. And I use the term... Um, nation a little bit as a provocation because um, it's there, there is no uh, agreement I think among historians of Korea whether that um, makes sense um, to me um, built on a number of, of historians of Korea both in Korea and outside of Korea uh, I think it is meaningful I think there is something quite unique that happens in Korea when you get a little bit further up in time from my starting so to the 16th century or thereabouts, late 16th century, where under the impact of the great East Asian wars uh, of the latter part of that century and the early part of the 17th century, you know, the Japanese attack 
on Korea and on 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 Ming, Ming China in the in the 16th century, and then the Qing Manchu conquest of China in the in the early 17th century. Under the pressure of these cataclysmic events that both have a very direct impact for Korea, there is something that happens which makes some Koreans define themselves in ways that are remarkably similar to what happened in Europe in the 19th century, when you get the, the first actual formulation of the, of the Western concepts of nation. The idea that these people are connected in a unique kind of way through blood, uh, inheritance, to, to territory that they possess, through language, not least, um, and through a culture that is uniquely drawn. Mm. Uh, a kind of idea that would be entirely foreign to people living in China uh, at, in that same period of time. Mm. So, um, you know, then some people are saying, you know, why, why on earth nation may be bad enough, but why not call it righteous nation? So righteousness is a key concept in your Confucian thinking. And it was probably the concept that was of greatest importance in that neo-Confucian revolution in Korea um, some 600 years ago. And it has stayed as a mainstay of Korean political thinking, uh, as it has in the political thinking of much of the Confucian zone in Eastern Asia, right up to today. But it's particularly striking in, in Korea. So I don't mean to say that all, all Koreans are righteous or, or uh, that the righteousness as a, uh, in an implemented form is more significant in Korea than elsewhere. Only that this has been a very meaningful slogan particularly when the Korean polity comes under pressure to, to direct uh, against its opponents, this claim to righteousness. Well, yes, and I, you highlight some really fascinating historical continuities, the existence, for example, of these uh, righteous armies, the Uibyeong, uh, in both uh, the Hideyoshi Japanese uh, invasion of, of Korea uh, centuries ago, and then once again kind of uh, some of the you know uh, communist guerrilla armies identified themselves in the same way hundreds of years later. Um, you you know yeah you make a persuasive case I think for uh, the pre the presence or at least the um, the usefulness of this idea of righteousness uh, you know e or ui uh, as a as a kind of way of thinking about exactly that kind of cohesive nation like at the very least tendency. Uh, which I think makes, in a way, uh, you know, the kind of process of modernization and arrival of modernity in East Asia so interesting that that many people were already doing something <laughs> that looked a bit like this new set of ideas that were that were imported and um, perhaps you know uh, have continued to do them in an even more intense way <laughs> than 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 some of the people who supposedly came up with this idea of nationhood. Exactly. And, and, and then, of course, how this is reflected and taken over and giving, given completely new meanings and significance when you get into the 20th century. So I think it's very important to move away from this idea. This actually goes for both countries, that there is an unbroken direct tradition, for instance, with regard to the uh, Korea as nation um, concept that goes from, let's say, the 16th century and up to the early 21st century. I think you know, lots of transformations and lots of use and misuse of, 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 of concepts that go on in Korea during that time period. The same is true for China. Uh, but, but it's still meaningful, I think, just like you said, 
to pursue the development and the and the, the contestation that is connected to some of these concepts over a long period of time. Mm. And I guess it helps us to understand also how some of these somewhat revisionist or reconstructionist histories can be written somehow plausibly because there are enough ingredients even if they are distributed and, and kind of configured in a very different way as as you outline that can be drawn on to at least suggest a an unbroken line of continuity in the way that i suppose national uh, history is and, and, and national identities are, are sort of based on um but I guess I mean that's that's a, a particularly compelling part of the of the book as a whole. I think your your kind of uh, you know tracing of these these sorts of um, uh, continuities, but uh, also of course uh, big ruptures in this relationship. Um, but I wonder if we can start with uh, uh, at least in the term in the chronology uh, one of the sort of uh, another another of these kind of key historical questions in the relationship between China and states in its neighborhood, if you like, or on the edge of, of the big empire, as you put it. Um, and that is uh, the question of uh, Choson's relationship with the Ming and then going forward into the Qing as a sort of tributary relationship, because this is one of these within the history of nations, the, the revisionist history of East Asian nations, that is a particularly provocative one uh, around whether or not there existed, for example, a tribute system, whether or not this was some sort of coherent framework for understanding international relations. So could you say something about how you came to understand the role of tribute uh, and and the kind of yeah vassal status of Korea vis-a-vis Ming yep. and then Qing, uh, yeah, what what that long durée perspective and, uh, helps you understand about this? Yeah, so I mean, with regard to uh, tribute and tributary systems, so I've uh, argued this earlier on when I did a book on um, on China's uh, foreign relations in the sort of longer period, going back to the mid mid Qing era. Um, by basically saying uh, tribute played a role, but I have a hard time seeing a tributary system. I mean, it wasn't really, it didn't really become a system, except for certain relatively brief periods during, uh, especially during the Ming and Qing. Um, and the reason why it didn't become a system was that the empire necessarily had to deal with surrounding countries that it saw as in one way or another subservient to itself by very different kind of measures. So I sometimes joke that, you know, since I gave these lectures at Harvard, that the tributary system was more established at Harvard than, than what it ever was in East Asia. And I think that holds true. Um, but that doesn't mean that tribute is unimportant. So in the relationship between China and Korea, where clearly Korea had defined itself, certainly through that neo-Confucian transformation that I was just talking about, as a state somehow subservient to the empire. The idea of tribute is a way of practicing um, in ways that developed, uh, in very different ways, I think, from what was originally intended, practicing that kind of relationship. And the Koreans became masters of practicing it. So, you know, they saw themselves, the, the, the Joseon leaders, saw themselves as Chinese vassals. They were uh, a, a state that was subservient to the Ming. And then, as you said in your intro, somewhat more reluctantly uh, after the early 17th century to the, to the Qing, but not in a way that meant that the empire decided everything that happened in or even around Korea. Um, the Koreans made use of the tribute missions going to Beijing to get a lot of information about what was happening in the empire. Today, I think we would call it intelligence. 
they were really good at intelligence gathering. They knew much more about the empire than what the empire ever knew about them. And that kind of information enabled them to put their own state in many ways in a privileged position in terms of dealing with that relationship. Um, in times of crisis and conflict, as we saw with the attempted Japanese invasions in the late 16th century, uh, you know, the power relationship comes out very clearly with, with the Ming Empire in the driver's seat. But apart from that, based on the kind of advantages that the Koreans have taken for themselves in, the, in, in dealing with Ming and, and Qing China, they also had a lot of things that they could do, uh, not least in terms of their own development, the domestic uh, frameworks, the way of setting up state and society in Korea, on which the empire had relatively little influence. So it's important to get these relationships right. I think if we here, if we think in European terms about vassalage, um, tribute, uh, empire, we are sometimes getting these categories wrong, the way they actually played out in Eastern Asia. This is a very different kind of system um, from what we found in, in Europe during the medieval and early modern, or, or even, even, even the modern era. Mm. And it's this kind of, I guess, textured understanding of, of these relationships, which, um, yeah, it's fair to say, I think have become much more prominent in, uh, in, in recent histories of, of this region and an understanding that there may have been various modes of, uh, you know, East Asian or Asian international relations, if we can even call it international, given that nation is baked into that word, but we're constrained by terminology, uh, that don't easily fit um, and that also don't really fit these sort of narratives of uh, eternal statehood uh, that, that we mentioned earlier. Um, but I guess when it comes to uh, questions of how these things are sustained then, I mean, moving forward into the Qing, which, uh, yeah, as we've identified already, uh, was a kind of more uh, fractious period, at least to start with, uh, for Choson relations with the, with the empire. Um, there's the question there about uh, how the Qing operated and, and new, new historical uh, understandings of the Qing have obviously helped us appreciate the extent to which it was a very diverse uh, assemblage of different sort of modes of governance and, and, and identities even for the emperor. It was the Ming and more, I think you put it on the kind of Ming, Ming plus, right? It was like, it was all, it was everything the Ming was, but it was a whole lot of other things as well, which I think is a quite a, a fun, a provocative and interesting way of putting it. But when it comes to the relations with Choson, Choson, like Korea might have seemed like a very ripe place to just include in the way that in the Asian territories were included. So what, what's the conclusion you came to about why not why didn't the Qing go further, especially since it invaded, especially since you know the, the Manchus invaded Korea twice? Why didn't mm. they want to fully bring it in in a more sort of Euro-style, uh, full subjugation type mode? Yeah, it's it is a, a very interesting question to ask. I mean, why that relationship stayed more or less within the same framework as it did during the Ming, with, with as you said, with some additions uh, to that in terms of what the Koreans could and could not do. So I think there are, there are two main reasons. Um, the first one is what I already alluded to, that the Koreans understood, the Korean leaderships understood fairly early uh, how they could deal with the king, um, which was basically through paying homage to being able to switch very late in the game, it should be said, uh, from, an, from an allegiance 
to the main, uh, to an allegiance to the Qing. They did so under great pressure. It was not something the Joseon state wanted to do. For a very long time, in secret and semi-secret, um, at the uh, royal altars in, in Joseon, uh, you would have uh, sacrifices and ceremonies carried out uh, to remember the Ming Empire and, and the Ming imperial family. Uh, who were seen as righteous, uh, in contrast to the conquerors coming from the outside, the Qing. But while doing that, they were the the Joseon leaders were willing to and able to give just about enough homage to the Qing in formal terms that the Qing decided to leave well enough alone. I think they were tempted at many times. The Qing emperors and their uh, their advisors were tempted to whack the Koreans but they felt that they were not subservient enough, but always held back, saying that they had bigger fish to fry, more difficult issues to deal with elsewhere, which was promoted the Qing era literally through. So that's the first reason. The other, the other reason, I think, is mainly ideological. Um, the Qing needed to construct somehow, somewhere, the image of a model battle, a model ally, you could say, within the region. And other polity connected to itself that behaved according to neo-Confucian principles and behaved correctly towards the imperial state. So given all the trouble that the Qing had with Southeast Asia, with Vietnam especially, um, with, with Central Asia, uh, with, with, with Tibet, with the Mongols, it's not surprising that Korea became that image of the model ally, even though much of that idealness was not reflected in reality, certainly not the way it was seen from Korea. But it gave the Joseon a wonderful opportunity to play the Qing, um, uh, getting advantages from, for actually confirming, um, at least in theory, that Qing image of the, of the model vessel. Mm. And you draw out some quite tempting almost almost sometimes it feels too tempting parallels with more contemporary developments where uh, i mean you, you, one of your kind of concluding points not to be too much of a spoiler is that the china korea relationship today perhaps represents something uh, a kind of model or at least a sort of um, weather vane for china's broader relationships with the world at large when it's when when these relations uh, as these relations expand and deepen uh, well beyond East Asia, um, but and also you you know kind of find these parallels uh, with regard to North Korea's apparent contentedness to at least uh, support the centrality of China in East Asia, in as much as it doesn't allow anyone else to occupy it or influence it. Um, and and these things, I think, yeah, are very difficult not to be the, the kind of uh, yeah very intense uh, Korean engagement with Confucianism, the latter intense. Korean engagement with Stalinism or or consumer capitalism, it's difficult to avoid these. Uh, but I think you do it in a, a way that it goes beyond just, you know, oh, this looks a bit like this. There, there's a, a lot of use there for these things. Um, but yeah, moving a bit closer then to this more contemporary era, and uh, you, you kind of chart very uh, well and in a lot of detail the uh, complications, the kind of identity crises, the, the issues around uh, how to understand international affairs, as well as one's own domestic setup that came about as a result of the late 19th century and early 20th century kind of collision with uh, European empire, of course, Japanese empire. So, I mean, how did this uh, sense of China-Korea relations as a sort of paradigm of some sort of a model uh, 
kind of undergo transformations during this era, if that's not too broad a question. I guess another thing I'm interested in is how uh, how much were ideas, uh, if, if Confucianism was this idea that was very informative, very, very foundational to the relationship for a long time, did that continue to play a role even as, uh, you know, these ideas became very kind of compromised and under attack by outside forces um, uh, in, that, in, that, in the relationship? I don't know if I've quite put that clearly, but uh... yeah, no, you have it. I, I think so. On the on the latter question, the the impact that ideas had in this case, uh, a relatively narrow set of, of Neo Confucian ideas. I mean, when you get into the nineteenth century and beyond, I, I I think that these still played a very important relationship, uh, important role in the relationship. Um, as it as they did within each of the countries themselves, at least for some time, uh, things changed rather rapidly when you get into the 20th century, of course. But throughout the 19th century and up to the early 20th century, I think these ideas played a very significant role. Um, Korea, in many ways, uh, was the last holdout in terms of clinging to. Uh, some of the core ideas of neo-Confucian righteousness in a broad sense, which by the mid-19th century, I think, had been translated, at least for some Koreans, and Koreans, of course, like everyone else, have you know, been divided on a, on a lot of issues, including what Confucian righteousness actually consists of. But, but as a, as a set of terms, I think it did play a very important role when the Qing then finally started getting into serious trouble with other empires uh, in the mid-19th mid century. Uh, seen from a Joseon perspective, there was something fundamentally unfair in this idea that the world order should be upset and that the empire that ruled from the center in China uh, should be replaced by other empires. It was, in a way, a repeat, I think, for many Joseon intellectuals, of the challenge that Japan uh, had made in the late 16th century, which was also seen as unjust. Uh, the center should be within the empire that had been established on the same principles as the Joseon state had been established on, namely uh, neo-Confucian righteousness. And when that doesn't happen, when the empire starts losing out in the late 19th century, uh, this is a period of, of great confusion in Korea, because uh, uh, while trying to stay at least for the elite, trying to stay uh, true to these principles that they saw as being joined between China and Korea, they also saw the collapse of the Qing state. So in the end, I think by the very late 19th century, and unfortunately, both the same time as uh, Korea is gradually being taken over and then colonized by Japan, which is the basic tragedy in Korean history. Uh, there is this sense that Korea itself is in a way becoming not just a battleground, but a focus point for these kinds of neo-Confucian ideas. Hmm. Uh, while China uh, under the Qing had failed, um, the significance of upholding these ideas in Korea is even more important. Than um, even more central than what it has been before, and it's that in a way that creates the origin, at least to me, of this intensity in in Korean 
identity and nationalism that you find in, in the 20th century. Mm. And we see that play out, uh, yeah, in, in, of course, various, uh, well, mostly often very tragic form, uh, as you as you document through, uh, of course, as you said, Japanese colonization, followed uh, in fairly short order by uh, partition and the Korean War. Um, but I guess, since we don't have a huge amount of time left, I thought I would bring us closer to the present than, than even those events and ask you what the kind of uh, value of, of, of this sort of um, deeper historical perspective, I mean, this is the question you ask yourself in the conclusion, but the, this understanding of uh, yeah, a certain kind of empire versus nation relationship and, of, and the, the role that uh, certain ideas, you know, whether it's, uh, I guess, Confucianism in times past or more recently, uh, communism or capitalism have played in this relationship. What does what does the kind of long durée perspective have to say about uh, you know the yeah two polities as I mentioned that are on the Korean Peninsula today and their relationship with China? I think that in most international settings, or to understand global processes, uh, understanding at least in outline uh, something about the historical background is of of tremendous importance. It's actually of more importance now than. I think it's ever been in my lifetime because we're going through a period of tremendous change away from many structures and even ideas that people thought would last for a very long time coming out of the aftermath of the Second World War. So understanding uh, that history, contested as it is, different views of it as there are, I think is of, of tremendous importance. Let me just use two examples, uh, if I may, for today. Mm. So the first one has to do with the relationship between the, today's People's Republic of China and North Korea. And I think in this country, in the United States and in, in Europe, it's entirely impossible to understand that relationship if you do not think about how these two countries have been brought together by history, which is a much deeper history than just the history of the Korean War, when the two, of course, were allies and fought together against the United States uh, and, against, uh, and against South Korea. It goes back to the very origins of Marxism and communism in, in Eastern Asia. It's a very long relationship, not an unproblematic relationship, because Chinese communism and Korean communism have at least at times moved in very different directions. But it is a, it is a lasting relationship, which you have to understand its history in order to grasp the full complexities of today. And then secondly, perhaps more importantly in the, in the longer one, this unique and very complicated relationship that uh, Koreans overall, maybe particularly today because they can more freely express it, Koreans in South Korea have to China. Where there is still a great deal of uh, ideals that are felt to be in common, not least among younger people. Um, many younger Chinese, when I teach in China, discuss this with, with Chinese students, have a tremendous admiration for South Korea, South Korean culture, South Korean technology, South Korea's achievements. Um, but overlaying that admiration uh, is still this sense of big brother and, and little brother, that Koreans should conform to what the Chinese state's interests are at any given moment, whether they're in the North or in the South. And of course, on the side of many Koreans in the South, also an increasing emphasis coming out of this time period that we just discussed um, with regard to the early 20th century of Korean uh, national identity and Korean nationalism. So this is not going to be 
an easy relationship going forward, I mean, between China and either of the two Korean states. And I think in order to grasp that relationship, which will be of essence, not just for peace and development in, in Eastern Asia, but for the whole world, one has to revisit history and try to understand some of the structures that, that come out of that deeper process. Fantastic. Well, yeah, that's helped me uh, understand better too. Another question which I had but didn't get onto about uh, why it is that historians seem to be so present in international relations and, and, and these things these things seem quite a blurred line, especially, you know, looked at from a, an anthropologist's point of view anyway. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of historic historical sort of domination of some of this area, which I think you make a compelling case for, uh, given the, yeah, uh, the, the expert analysis you subject these last 600 years of China-Korea relations too in the book. So thank you so much, uh, Anna, for uh, talking to me today. Um, I thought I would just close out by asking you briefly what you're working on now, uh, what you have on the go. So I'm just completing uh, a history of China during the long 1970s, um, from the late uh, 1960s onwards, from the, the, the height of the Cultural Revolution and on to the mid-1980s and the reform era. So this is a co-written book with my dear friend and colleague Chen Jian. Um, and hopefully we will have it finished um, by the end of this year for, for, for publication in, 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 in 2022. So uh, that's been a, a very interesting endeavor when you connect it to some of the issues that we've been discussing today to understand China within a very different uh, chronological setting, but also, you know, the links between very dramatic developments in China and the connections that it has to its neighbours and the rest of the region. Fantastic. Yeah, well, it's great to see, uh, you know, periods as seemingly recent as the 70s, 80s, and even 90s times falling under the historian's uh, ambit now, given as we uh, that we're so far into the 21st century. So we'll look forward a lot to reading that and I hope also perhaps speaking to you uh, again too. Um, in any case, thank you so much, Anna, for appearing today. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to this podcast. It's been a podcast on uh, the New Books Network, New Books in East Asian Studies, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>